Romans 13, beginning of verse 7. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His Word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you again for your Word and for the truth that it contains. And we ask that you would reveal to us your truth here as we consider this uh, passage, this topic this evening, and that you would uh, lead us, guide us, bless us, give us understanding uh, to the truth that is here. And uh, we pray that we would truly be equipped to uh, bring glory and honor and praise to your name. Uh, and so we just pray for your blessing now upon our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul uh, urges the believers uh, there in Rome to not only respect and honor those in authority over them, but to also to be careful to remember the law of God and how it is to be a guide in daily living. Now, we know earlier in the book of Romans, Paul labored to show that salvation is by God's grace alone and that we're justified by faith and not by the works of the law. But at the same time, Paul has repeatedly hinted at the fact that the law still has its place in the life of the believer. Indeed, it remains for the people of God the rule or the standard of righteousness, even though it doesn't attain or secure that righteousness. And even as we've been considering in our study in the book of James in the morning, Paul, here in Romans 13, argues that we basically demonstrate the righteousness that we have in Christ by grace through faith by living according to the truth of God's law. And the need for this righteous living, according to the law, becomes increasingly important, as we see here in verse 12, that the night is far spent and the day is at hand. In other words, as the time of Christ's return draws ever near, his people, that is Christ's people, the church, would do well to be found striving after holiness and righteousness to the glory of God. And so the apostle admonishes in verses 13 and 14 saying, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Indeed, he's reminding us that it's time to put off the old way of living 
and to put on Christ so that when Christ returns, he will find us faithful. And of course, the way that we put on Christ is by resting in the grace of God, pursuing holiness and righteousness in our lives. That is, we show our love to him by keeping his commandments. Now, this important role of the law becomes the emphasis in uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, in paragraphs 5 through 7, which we're uh, focusing on this evening. Well, the first significant issue that needs to be addressed concerning the law of God is whether the law is still binding on mankind today and whether this binding includes even believers in Christ. Because we know that there are those today, believers and unbelievers alike, who would deny each of these obligations. Previously, we saw that the confession was clear to point out that the ceremonial law and the judicial laws that God gave to Israel were only given to Israel and not to all of mankind. Again, the ceremonial laws pointed toward and were completely fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Paul uh, reminds us in uh, 1 Corinthians that Christ was the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. And so there's no longer any need to keep the various ceremonial laws, that is, those laws having to do with the temple worship, with the sacrificial system, and with the holiness code, such as the dietary laws and the various restrictions. And it's interesting that people today, even people who claim to uh, have knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, fail to see this uh, very uh, truth that uh, when they try to lump in all the laws of the Old Testament together and, uh, and not understanding uh, why we don't follow the dietary laws uh, today, but why we still follow the moral law of God. Well, like the dietary laws uh, and the ceremonial law, the judicial law, was given specifically to the state of Israel, and thus there are no obligations upon other nations beyond uh, what the confession calls the general equity thereof, that it uh, basically reminding us that, yes, there's crimes, uh, and those crimes ought to be punished, but God doesn't uh, bind other nations to apply the same kind of punish punishments that he told Israel to uh, punish the crimes with. But the moral law of God, again, wasn't tied to a specific nation as the civil laws, the judicial laws, and the ceremonial laws uh, were given to Israel. Now, the moral law of God when it was given, as we've already considered uh, a couple weeks ago, in its very first form, was given to not only to Adam, but to all of mankind in the Garden of Eden through the covenant of works. And God gives his moral law then to all. And so all of mankind, all those who descend from Adam, are, are called to obey and live. And are warned that if they disobey that they will come under the judgment of death. Well, in paragraph 5 of chapter 19, the confession notes that the moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it, 
And so here we see not only is all mankind bound to obey the law, but they're also bound to acknowledge the authority of God the Creator who gave it. God, because He is the Creator of all things, requires obedience to His law. And He requires recognition of His authority from all His creatures. But we also see that this obedience to the law is affirmed even in the New Testament, as the confession goes on to note, neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthens this obligation. And so here we see that Jesus didn't discard the moral law of God, but in fact, He reinforces and He strengthens the moral law, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches, for example, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, unto you whosoever hates his brother is guilty of murder in his heart. Now, many people look at this and say, well, Jesus is replacing the law. No, he's not replacing the law. He's further uh, elaborating on the law that it just isn't just what you do, but also what you think and what you say. You can be in violation of God's law. So he's strengthening the moral law and our commitment to it. We noted this expansion of the law before, and that Jesus then, of course, sums up all the law in the two love commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the summary of the first four commandments. And that to love your neighbor as yourself summarizes the last six commandments. And so the Apostle Paul says here in uh, verses 8 and 10, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And so here, Paul is tying together these Old Testament, the, the, the last six commandments, to this uh, summary that Jesus has given uh, in the New Testament, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And of course, even when we think about that particular command, uh, that summary, well, we find that in the Old Testament as well. That even Israel was called to love their neighbor as themselves. And so it's nothing new. It's just a summary uh, statement of the more comprehensive law of God, moral law of God found in the Ten Commandments. And so again, the obligation to obey God's moral law continues then even for the believer. Though we recognize, of course, that it isn't the keeping of the law that saves us, and that it's only by the grace of God that we're thus enabled to keep the law, and even then we know that we will not keep it perfectly because of the remnant of the sin nature that remains in us and is at war uh, with our desire to do what is right and good in God's sight. But keeping the law of God is the proper way that we express our thankfulness for the love which God has given to us through Christ, even as Jesus has commanded that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the Christians striving to keep the law of God trying to do that faithfully, rely on the grace of God. That's not legalism, although some may try to claim that it is, but rather it's an expression of love and thanksgiving. Now legalism, rightly defined by the RP testimony, 
as this, consist of legalism consists of mere outward conformity to the law and the absence of love to the lawgiver. It often involves the effort to gain salvation and reward through such obedience and the tendency to require of others a similar pattern of conduct. It may also involve adding human requirements that evade God's law. And indeed, this last point was what Jesus condemned uh, the Jewish leaders for. In Mark 7, Jesus said, He answered them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me at their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. And so it isn't legalism, because we strive to do what is right in God's sight, according to the revelation of His word, But it is legalism when we try to impose upon ourselves or others commands which God never gave. And so it's important to stress again that the Christian's relationship to the law of God has changed, certainly since the coming of Christ, because now the law no longer stands to justify or condemn the one who is in Christ Jesus. Apostle Paul declares this at the beginning of Romans 8, saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as Christians, we've been freed from the curse of the law, which is death. Paul emphasizes this in Galatians 3, verse 10. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse of the law, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. If the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now the confession emphasizes this point at the beginning of of paragraph 6 and then again in the uh, at the end of paragraph 6 and the beginning of uh, paragraph 7, where it states, Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the graces of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. And so the keeping of the law isn't against the gospel, as long as we remember, again, that it doesn't save us. That only comes by grace alone through faith. But indeed, it is the grace of God, and it is the Spirit of God in us that enables us to desire and to do the law as God requires. Keeping the law is truly a delight, because it's God's revelation to us of what pleases Him. Now, some like to use Paul's words in Romans 6, verse 14, to make a case that we don't have to keep the law. And there, uh, Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, <clears throat> for you are not under law, but under grace. Again, some Christians think that Paul is setting here the law and grace in opposition to one another. But if you look closely, Paul's emphasis here isn't regarding the judgment and curse of the law, 
which clearly the Christian has been freed from, as we mentioned, and Paul mentions that in Romans 8. But as the first part of this verse indicates, he's speaking of the practice of sin. See, if we're still under the law and its curse, then we'd be under the dominion of sin. But in Christ, we have freedom. Freedom from the curse and freedom from the dominion of sin in our lives. And so in this way, Paul is reassuring the believers that yes, they're under grace. Sin no longer reigns in them because they've been freed from the curse of the law. Yet this doesn't free us from the obligation to seek to please God by keeping His moral law, the Ten Commandments. And so let's consider then the specific uses of the law as they apply to the Christian believer as well as to the unbeliever. Well, for the Christian, for the uh, moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, is God's revelation of His will for us, and it again identifies what pleases Him. Because of this, the moral law is our infallible rule for practice. It shows us how we're to live, even and especially uh, in an estate of grace. We see the stress throughout the New Testament as the moral law of God is never abolished, but is pointed toward as the perfect rule and guide. And this includes the one day in seven principle established in the fourth commandment, the one uh, commandment that people just want to disregard altogether. The Lord's Day, which is to be kept holy by God's people by worshiping Him and resting in Him. And so truly what a blessing that God hasn't left us guessing about what it is that pleases Him. But he has clearly revealed this to us in His moral law. Well, the second use of the moral law of God is that the law reveals to us our sin and shows us our need for our Savior, even Christ. Paul says in Romans 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. And so the law of God identifies for us what it is that God calls sin. And as we study the law, we realize that we're sinners in need of God's grace. And it's in this way that Paul says in Galatians 3 that the law it was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so the law points us to our need for Christ. It doesn't justify us though. Well, when our sin is identified, again we recognize that we need Christ as Savior so that the law helps to prompt us toward confession and repentance of sin in our lives. Well, thirdly, the law also shows us how holy Christ is and how undeserving we are of His grace. Remember, Christ was perfectly obedient to God's law. And we struggle daily to keep even one command. It also emphasizes to us that Christ truly accomplished for us what we couldn't do, and that is perfect obedience to God's law. And it reveals to us both the glory of Christ and the power of His grace. Again, in Romans 5 earlier, Paul says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made 
righteous. Now, if you ever doubt God's love for you, well, try keeping the law of God perfectly. And you'll realize that you can't. And then you can remember that Christ Jesus did so on your behalf. And so we ought to then give praise and thanks to Him for His mercy and grace in being that perfect, holy law keeper. But the law also has some very specific uses for the unbeliever as well. The most forthright is that for those who are outside of Christ, the law judges and condemns them in their sin against God. Paul in Romans 3 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so the law is God's standard, which he will use to judge mankind. And if a person isn't found clothed in the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ, well, then they will be found guilty as charged, as guilty of violating God's law. But the law also does accomplish some good in relation to the unbeliever. It works to restrain them from sin and the outward expressions of it. And we see this restraint even in those places where the gospel and the written word of God hasn't reached. We see it because God has written his law in the hearts of all mankind. And their consciences bear witness to this truth. Again, this is what Paul argued in Romans 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they don't have the written law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And so no one can deny that they do not have the law of God or do not have access to it because God has placed it upon the hearts of man and giving them a conscience. And so the moral law of God is truly a binding obligation placed upon all humanity. And all humanity is called to conform their lives to it as the perfect revealed will of God so that they might not only acknowledge their Creator, but express their gratitude to him for his continued sustaining of all that he's created. But the moral law remains an obligation even for those who have been redeemed by Christ and who walk in a state of grace, even we ourselves. We seek to obey God's law and we seek to conform our lives to it. Again, not so that we can attain or maintain our salvation, but again as a way to show our love and our gratitude to God for the great work of salvation that He has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Indeed, for the believer in Christ, we should then truly delight ourselves in abiding in and in keeping His law that we might truly fulfill the purpose for which He created us. And that is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. O Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for this reminder of your, the importance of your law, even in the life of the believer, that no, it's not how we are justified, it's not how we are even maintain our salvation, 
but you have revealed to us how we can live and how we can please you. And that you have given us your moral law to do just that. And that as we seek to conform our lives to it, we're reminded, first of all, that we will not be able to do that perfectly. But that because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ poured out upon us in your spirit, that we will make great strides in holiness, becoming more and more like Christ as we conform ourselves to your word and to his perfect and glorious image. And so we just praise you and thank you, O God, that you have revealed these things to us and we are are mindful of the fact that even many Christians uh, deny or downplay the role of your law because of a lack of understanding. And we pray, Father, that we would not be boastful, but that we would be mindful of these things and that we would seek to be a faithful witness to the truth that you have called us and showed us how we are to live and conduct our lives That we're not to live in the way of the world as we once lived in sin. But now in Christ we are to walk in newness of life. And we are to walk in the way of your truth as you have revealed in your holy word and in your law. So we just pray, Father, that you would equip us in this way. That your spirit would help us to conform our hearts and our lives to this. That we would be faithful witnesses to this truth. And then even as we go about our usual duties and activities this week, we do pray that you would put us in situations, that you would uh, give us opportunities to share the gospel with those that we interact with, that many would call upon your name in faith through that faithful witness. And so we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.